Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome on the show two guests from the Outlier Portfolio. We're going to try a slightly different format this time. So rather than go deep into one particular founder's journey, we're going to talk more at an industry level. And that's because the topic that we're going to explore is RWH, real world assets, the kind of holy grail of the promise of DeFi and crypto to be able to bring on board real world assets to make kind of true impact, both from a kind of financial inclusion perspective, but also to bring, you know, hopefully trillions of dollars of assets into this kind of new economic infrastructure that we've been busy building for the last decade. RWAs are really hot now, at least as a topic. Uh, our teams have been working on in the space and the technology, obviously, for, for several years, coming from very strong TradFi backgrounds. And I think that's one clue as to why this this time it might be different. I have my thesis for why now, but rather than kind of just get one perspective, what we've done is we've we've pulled two brilliant founders from our most exciting RWA portfolio companies that have recently graduated from the Accelerator program and also both recently closed very successful oversubscribed investment rounds. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So to introduce our guests, first, we've got Jitendra Jaitawat, who is co-founder and CEO of Helix, also known as JJ. Welcome, Jitendra. Hello. And we've got Dave Sutter, who is CEO, co-founder of OpenTrade. Welcome, Dave. Good to be here. Helix, Helix Labs, and OpenTrade both working on RWAs, coming at it from a slightly different perspective. So as I said, we're not going to get a huge amount of time to go into the kind of potted history of, of each startup and each founder, but we are going to be able to have a quick introduction from both. So maybe JJ, let's start with you. Give us a little bit about your your background and kind of, I guess, the elevator pitch on Helix, and, and we'll get into the detail of the stack customers go to market a little bit later. What we're doing at Helix is really bringing an institutional real-world asset protocol to connect on-chain lenders with sustainable yields coming from real-world private credit investments, specifically coming from emerging markets. We specialize particularly in a very well-defined borrower vertical called alternative lenders from emerging economies, predominantly from Southeast Asia on day one. Yeah, hi. So OpenTrade uh, is an institutional platform for on-chain lending and yield products backed by tokenized real-world financial assets. Our first products include liquidity pools for U.S. Treasury bills and investment grade uh, corporate risk, including commercial paper and supply chain finance. Awesome. Very, very succinct. You can tell these guys have been through an accelerator, right? They've, uh, they've kind of nailed the pitch. As I said, related, but different organizations. I want to get into the difference. Is it is it technical or is it kind of just purely go to market different types of assets that you guys are looking uh, to bring on board? But I have my thesis for why... This time it might be different with RWAs versus, say, several years now of, of hope and promise around what's, what's typically been called STO, security token offerings. One of them is part of my thesis is the fact that we now have very credible TradFi people coming into effectively the DeFi space and bringing industry experience credibility, but perhaps a more nuanced understanding of how this stuff can be better integrated into the existing financial system versus trying to build this like parallel, this kind of fantasy of a, of a parallel system. And I think you're both really good examples of that as founders. So it'd be great to just kind of get a minute on each background and kind of what, what brought you to this 
problem opportunity. So maybe JJ, we get back to you. Yeah. So for us, like any other TradFi, we have been really watching this whole space for quite a while. And we saw that there is an opportunity in terms of, you know, a convergence of two factors coming in on one end. You know, crypto investors, uh, despite all the innovation that has happened in DeFi and crypto native ecosystem over the, over the past one decade, uh, has come to the realization that you know there is a lack of sustainable yield within the crypto ecosystem. There has been this realization that the you know the technology may be different, but the fundamentals of finance don't change. Diversification still is important. Capital production still is important. On the other hand, the world where we come from, there has been also an increasing realization that the same infrastructure that was used to launch things like Bitcoin and Ethereum could also be leveraged to run the financial rails. You know, transparency in terms of immutability of the records and all of that brings in a lot of value in terms of using this technology judiciously in certain use cases, particularly private capital markets where there was really no infrastructure as such or no, no integrated infrastructure as such. So we see that you know, blockchain in general has a huge potential to scale private capital markets specifically and that's exactly the space we are in. And you and the team's background, I know you're ex-Goldman Sachs, you're there for over a decade, right? Could you just give a little bit of background on, on the team that you kind of brought together for this? Yeah, so me and my co-founder, both of us started our careers in 2000, you know, TradFi in 2008. I spent about a decade at Goldman building portfolio management, trading and risk platforms. My co-founder, Dave, he spent about a decade building a, you know, very successful investment banking and private banking career across Morgan, Nomura, Credit Suisse. And then we came together in 2019 to build fintech startup here in Southeast Asia. Pretty successful business of dispersing more than $200 million of private credit loans in Southeast Asia uh, across five years with literally zero defaults. This is where we saw this opportunity where we could bring in these highly curated investment opportunities to crypto native audience in their native ecosystem through the use of smart contracts and technology about it. Fantastic. Dave, I know you at least were head of network strategy at Circle at one point, right? At Center. Center, sorry. Uh, my background's very unconventional and it does, I think, dovetail into your thesis, which is my co-founder and I have been working on the tokenization of real-world assets for over a decade. We started working on Bitcoin in our dorm rooms on one of the first Bitcoin wallets in the iOS app store and used that technology to tokenize some of the first real-world assets in history, which was invoices for supply chain finance using a dollar-backed stablecoin before there were any other blockchains aside from Bitcoin. So for me, the emergence of real world assets as a hot topic is less surprising and more of an evolution of a trend that's been steadily advancing over the past decade. Uh, both Jeff and I, my co-founder, have spent a decade working with many of the largest financial institutions and corporate multinationals in the world on implementing blockchain-based networks for payments, supply chain finance, and that involves the tokenization of, of real world assets. So for me, this is more of a change in what the media and crypto Twitter is focused on because there's been a small group of individuals and companies, ourselves included, that have been working at this for, for quite a long time. And it's extremely exciting to see it now sort of be thrust to the fore because none of those benefits or opportunities have changed. What's changing, I think, to your point, Jamie, is now we're getting just a lot more investment, a lot more mind share, a lot more talent into working on this problem, which is a difficult one to solve and, and does take time. And we're seeing sort of the fruits of a lot of people's labor here now in 2023. Yeah. So aside from 
the meme, you know, I, I guess just that narrative building around RWAs. And of course, you know, crypto is very cyclical. It's very mimetic. It's it's pro and it's con because sometimes that meme then just moves on in, in, into something else. Clearly, that's not going to change your collective course. You know, you, you've both been working on this before it was fashionable and uh, presumably even if it goes temporarily out of fashion, continue to be working on it. What I want to try and explore is, is two, two ends of the spectrum. So firstly, what's different now beyond the narrative um, that makes this stuff possible at scale? But then equally, what still needs to be done? And that could be at a technical level, it could be at a regulatory level, because of course, one of the challenges with this meme is a, a lot of attention comes in, usually a lot of capital comes in. And then people realize, well, actually, it's a lot harder than they thought. There's still all these things that are in the way. There's still several years more of innovation needs to happen for it to fully realize its potential. And they, they kind of get bored and, and move on. And so actually setting expectation now, look, where we are is very exciting. But also here are the limitations. Here are the things that still need to happen for this to reach scale. But maybe we start with kind of the more, the more optimistic view on, on where we're at now. You know, so aside from the meme and maybe aside from the talent, what's different now? What is the state of the RWA industry and technical stack? Dave, maybe we'll, we'll kind of continue with you. Yeah. So outside of the talent and mindshare, I think two things jump to mind that are different today than maybe 2017 when we were working on this is one, the technology has come a huge huge way. A lot of capital has been invested in infrastructure for crypto and that's L1s, L2s. So the actual decentralized networks are building on, but also developer tooling, tools for developers to actually quick start and build applications. That is, I mean, when we started, there was only Bitcoin, right? And now you have, so they've solved a lot for scalability, for throughput, for control. The second being legal and regulatory clarity starting to come out of pretty much everywhere except the United States. Today, we just saw actually the passage of an Electronic Trade Documents Act in the United Kingdom. So why that's important is what US dollars are to cross-border trade. English law is the same for legal. So the majority of global trade is done under English law and now enshrined in the law of England is the ability to natively issue transfer, exchange, and finance electronic trade documents that underpin all cross-border trade. And that opens the door for the tokenization of these assets and the financing of these assets on public blockchains in a legally valid and binding way. And I think you're seeing those types of initiatives all over the world, uh, with the exception of the United States. So those two things have really opened the door, I think, for, for wider adoption. Is the expectation that as this becomes truly global, it might first be jurisdictions that have some kind of connection or basis of English law as almost a, as a as a protocol, a, a technical innovation that kind of links or binds them together. So, you know, whether that's Dubai, whether that's Singapore, whether that's Channel Islands, whether that's Cayman, you know, do we think that that kind of basis, that protocol of English law, will, will be the thing that will kind of bootstrap the, the the initial network across financial hubs? I think so. Absolutely. I mean, one of the documents that's now covered under this new law is a promissory note. A promissory note is a promise from one party to pay another a certain amount and a certain currency on a certain date. You can now create a legally binding smart contract to represent what has been a paper document for the last few hundred years. And that 
basic promise to pay can be used in hundreds of different financial applications and use cases and common law countries that follow English law will now inherit that and people can and yeah so short answer yes absolutely I think so that's that's really interesting and I think you can see it playing out already you know just coming back from Singapore and token 2049 but of course you know continued news coming out of places like Dubai and we've also got good relationships with Cayman for example and of course a lot of these places are where trillions of dollars of assets are parked anyway, right? Outside of these kind of larger economic zones, um, be that continental Europe, European Union, or, or the US. JJ, what's, what's your kind of take, including this convergence or convergence with kind of law, legal precedent, legal frameworks, and kind of the maturation of the technology what else are you seeing bring momentum behind RWA as a category? Yeah, I think uh, if I can build up on what uh, Dave just mentioned, the RWA ecosystem will have three layers. You know, one is standard, you know, standardizations or standards, which is like representation of an asset. How do we represent a particular asset and how do we represent the ownership of that asset? And how do we translate that? as a standard in terms of smart contracts. The second layer is the whole infrastructure. I believe this whole infrastructure part eventually would be commoditized. Uh, you know, this involves tokenization, securitization, uh, the institutional wallets, custodial solutions, on-ramping, off-ramping, etc. So all of that kind of plays the infrastructure layer. And then the third layer is asset specialists, where you have you know specific assets being brought in by different players, which have either a particular geographical expertise or a particular sector expertise or a particular asset expertise that could be coming in the form of T-bills, in the form of private credit, renewable energy-related assets or revenue-based financing or you know, mortgages, real estate, commodities. There's a whole bunch of different assets which you know specific asset specialists would eventually bring into the ecosystem. I see that work is happening on all of these fronts. Regulations definitely will play a key role. I, I see this as more of an interdisciplinary play where there is a role for regulations to play. There's a role for technology uh, to play and there's a role for builders and founders to come and you know leverage all of this infrastructure or innovate on top of it that will have to be coming into the play and i see right now a lot that is happening in all of these fronts uh, which is which is kind of overall creating the momentum so when we talk about DeFi, we talk about its composability at a kind of technical level protocols can be interchangeable you don't necessarily need to solve everything to be able to kind of bundle various protocols into a particular use case. To what extent is that true when you start introducing assets that are securities uh, or, or more regulated? To what extent is, is kind of that composability true at a, at a markets level, really? I would say more bound by the regulatory requirements. For example, KYC, AML checks is, is a key requirement. And uh, there could be certain assets which even though, you know, you have tokenized it, that makes them composable, you know, those tokens could be technically traded between anyone. The regulations require you to make sure, uh, you know, it could be traded only with, uh, you know, KYC. Uh, the, the secondary, you know, holders needs to be KYC or needs to be, you know, certain asset classes needs to ensure that the investors are accredited investors or institutional investors, uh, meaning they need to have certain asset or they need to have the know-how of the market. Again, regulators want to make sure investors are protected. Um, so there's there's a lot of that which is still coming from how the regulations are laid out in the in in the traditional world, and I don't foresee those core things to change. So 
when founders are building on, on, on a blockchain native ecosystem, I think some of those things will still need to be catered to, uh, to make sure when the secondary trading is happening, uh, you know, it is it is still exchanging hands between KYC and accredited tech investors, for example. So Dave, maybe to kind of just build on that, to what extent do you think things like counterparty risk can just be solved technically? So you can have this free flow of assets, almost this intermingling of assets, but still have guarantees that allow people to manage counterparty risk as they are legally obliged to if they're a financial institution? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I don't want to paper over how much this industry has accomplished on technical interoperability and how important that is. It is astounding. Speed of integration, the scope of interoperability, and the adoption of standards like ERC-20 or ERC-4626 is something that in mainstream financial markets over hundreds of years has not even come close to. So I think everyone working on that needs to pat themselves on the back because that makes it much easier to have the next discussion, which is around legal harmonization and identity. And that's really what you're getting to around counterparty risk is identity. The identification of your counterparties and the availability of information for you to underwrite the risk associated with dealing with them. And again, I think we have the tools already with the increasing adoption of verifiable credentials um, and on-chain identity to be able to incorporate identity checks and underwriting into automated on-chain workflows is again something that mainstream financial services could could only dream of. And I think it's part of the reason why uh, when mainstream financial services takes a peek into into our world, they're so excited by these things because it really reduces the capital expenditure and operational expenditure associated with adoption, which has always been a huge barrier. For me, in terms of counterparty risk management, right now it's being done the old school way, right? Um, and that means KYC, uh, AYB, uh, underwriting of credit and risk by reviewing either publicly audited or privately audited financial statements. And I think we have the tools now to actually take that on chain and do that in an automated fashion. And it really just is going to depend on the large players in the industry, be that exchanges, custodians, wallet, and other key service providers mandating that as a part of doing business with them. There are efforts underway by both Circle and Coinbase with a project called Verity, which I worked on at Center to introduce that sort of standard for verifiable credentials that could represent accredited investor checks, KYC, KYB, credit scores, a, a, a variety of different attributes to one's identity or one's organization's identity that can be used to make this stuff more efficient. But today it's being done the old school way. And and I don't think that's necessarily a big problem. I think it's just an evolutionary step towards towards something better. Counterparty risk in two ways. One is in terms of the you know credit risk and all of that. The other is like, for example, many of these assets may have some sort of collateral. And how do we manage that uh, collateral? And many a case, many times, you know, this collateral sits off chain. It's a real world asset collateral. There still needs to be, you know, right kind of frameworks put in place in terms of having a security agent, which is a real-world security agent who's taking care of the collateral on behalf of the on-chain lenders. And as they rightly mentioned, like I think we are right now at that place where there are certain things that needs to be off-chain and we need to work on uh, maybe you know piecemeal approach where what we could automate, what we could digitize, what we could you know leverage the infrastructure as a leg of locks we use. And then we slowly, as 
rest of the regulatory framework matures, you know, more and more components kind of become native uh, on-chain. So JJ, to what extent is this disruptive versus transformative? I think, you know, Dave was mentioning for anybody that's worked within traditional capital markets or, you know, within, say, let's uh, one particular financial institution. I mean, it's, it's almost kind of the shared joke now the IT systems are just layers on layers and layers of kind of outdated technology just almost impossible to change at the scale that they operate at so to what extent will RWA and and DeFi technologies unbundle or remove various intermediaries versus just actually make everybody's lives a lot easier more efficient make markets more efficient I'll give you an example Um, when I was at Goldman I used to Manage the trade settlements. That that's a classic example of even in stock markets, uh, you know, there will be a D plus X settlement, uh, and you know, and one of the reason is in you know, all of these intermediation that happens in between. So distributed ledger definitely brings in a lot of efficiency in in that way, where you could have pretty much a D plus zero settlement on any asset class which is uh, brought on chain. So I, I see a huge potential uh, in that way. It's just that the adoption itself will take its own path in terms of which asset classes can come first. I think at this point, we see the asset classes which have deep liquidity and considered, you know, high quality for some T-bills is is what is right now rallying the whole thing. But that's just kind of the step one. And then, you know, then comes the private capital markets where there's no infrastructure, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then slowly come in, you know, uh, rest of the ecosystem as as the whole uh, all in from So as two founders, you know, raising venture capital, establishing a go-to-market, you know, there's there's perhaps a range of different ways you, you could go to market. And I'd be interested to get both of your perspectives on uh, how you've approached go-to-market, how you've approached effectively bootstrapping a particular market because you need both the supply and demand, you need a certain level of liquidity. How do you how do you start from zero with that? And, and wh- why did you particularly choose the, the specific assets? Maybe Dave. So our, our go-to-market has been unique, I think, even within the, say, on-chain treasury bill segment of players, of which there's more and more every day, it seems like, is... We're taking the approach that Circle did, which is a B2B2B or B2B2C approach. So we work directly with primarily exchanges, custodians, financial service providers, wallets, and allow them to embed institutional yield products in their existing systems and offer them to their to their customers, be that retail or institutional clients. And the reason we started with treasury bills is there's an unlimited supply. There's no underwriting and it's a great asset class right now. It allows us to basically build and prove that we have an institutional grade bridge, operational, legal, and technological between traditional markets and the crypto and DeFi capital markets, which can then become essentially a scalable sausage maker to move any type of asset through uh, for any type of audience, risk profile, liquidity need, uh, tenor, yield, et cetera. Um, So our go-to-market has been focus on capital aggregators within the crypto capital markets who have a real pain point, focus on an asset class with unlimited supply as a way to prove and build foundations to scale uh, down the credit curve into higher yield products. And eventually we, we view ourselves, we are not a crypto product for crypto companies. That's just our initial sort of product market fit is there. We believe with what we've built, anyone anywhere that has a dollar balance or has a system that holds dollar balances for their customers 
can take advantage uh, of open trade to offer yield to their customers in a secure and compliant way. And that's that's been um, our go to market to date. And that will give us the foundation we need to go into much trickier, much more expensive and much more longer term products that are ultimately stickier and I think more impactful, which is really supply chain finance uh, and trade finance. Yeah. So for us, uh, there are two target personas that we need to tackle. One on the deal origination side and then second on the liquidity side. On the deal origination side, the general perception is there will always be a lot of supply of good quality assets, but that's actually not true. If you talk to regulated real world institutional borrowers, actually many of them they don't really want to even touch stable coins because of the whole regulatory, um, you know, un- unclarity overall. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of ensuring that there is legal infra in place in case if it is required in terms of having institutional regulated custodians, escrow agents, or of you know uh, licensed off-ramp integrations, etc. Second, many of the real world borrowers actually have never handled crypto wallets, for example. So there's a lot of handholding it required in terms of managing an institutional wallet again, thanks to institutional digital custodians, uh, you know, that we, we're working with, that kind of provides all of that handholding. After that is, you know, that once that part is settled, then it's the exact same asset, uh, that the same kind of credit facility agreements, which they are familiar with. On the liquidity side, for us, again, as Dave, uh, we are also very focused on institutional and accredited investors. We're working with a lot of crypto, like, you know, on-chain hedge funds, or, um, you know, emerging market yield funds, uh, or digital family offices, freshies, as well as some of the stablecoin providers and exchanges who have these earn and yield product, which could leverage on these private credit deals, you know, for those yield products. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of B2B strategy on our end as well. Less of retail, more of high net worth individuals and institutional at this point, I mean, obviously, both you guys and, and Open Trade are building your own stack. You're building your own product solutions, as Dave mentioned earlier. You're kind of leveraging infrastructure that's been built more broadly in, in the Web three stack over the last decade. What's still missing? And it doesn't have to be technical necessarily. It could be kind of regulatory as well. But like, what's missing that is still kind of needed at an industry level to kind of really take the handbrake off and and go full throttle at at RWAs as an asset class? So KYC and, you know, now there are a lot of, you know, zero knowledge proof around identity and all of that is shaping up. Uh, Most of it has now become very seamless for individuals. KYB still is a very involved process. I think eventually once we have enough data, there will be, you know, these on-chain verifications of businesses, uh, which right now is is massively missing. So there's a lot of still, you know, dependency on off-chain KYC providers to do accreditation checks or do, you know, the KYC on a, on, a, on a business could be very complicated. You have to have shareholders, directors, registrars, and there's a lot more documents involved. So that's one space. Again, I don't have any particular thought on what would help scaling that. But I think once we have more and more business coming on chain, hopefully there will be some sort of you know on chain repetition or something that could be referred to uh, by different protocols. So we you know each of them don't have to build. This exact same thing replicated in every protocol. Uh, something along those lines would definitely help the whole industry. I think the next is it depends on who your who your customer is. For Web three and companies on the cusp of Web three, I don't think there's too much more required from a technical perspective for them. Traditional financial institutions 
there are a few barriers which have have yet to be solved, but are are getting there, and that is around uh, primarily privacy. And privacy is a for traditional financial institutions much more nuanced than just say zk to everything. It's it's actually selective privacy. So A and B want to transact, they need to be able to share everything, right? And maybe that involves the transference of an asset from from A to B. During that process, we don't want C to see any of that, right? Um, it's important that that they don't. But when it comes time for A to move that asset to C, C needs to know enough that the asset transfer historically was valid and that it's not a double spend, right? So the, it's it's selective privacy based on the transaction at that moment and which counterparties you're doing business with. And that's that's something that's getting there, right? So companies like Avalanche and Polygon, Avalanche Subnets, Poly, uh, Polygon, ZK, EVM, they're starting to get that foundation in place to to meet the, the much higher barrier that these traditional financial institutions. But for the crypto capital markets, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I think that we have what we need right now to uh, make a big splash and make a big impact from a technological perspective. thing I'd add though, just one more thing, is for everyone in crypto, ironically, one of the big barriers is access to the traditional banking system. And so until that day comes, and I do believe it may come sooner than people think, where USDC is broadly adopted so companies can pay suppliers, employees, uh, operating expenses, and stable coins and stay on chain, that, that access to the traditional banking system for payroll, uh, vendor expenses, et cetera, is, is really important. It's been a huge barrier for every company, anyone operating in the space. I know every outlier portfolio company and any company in crypto has had massive problems with opening basic things like bank accounts. And I think that that would help everyone. Um, I think that that's not controversial. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's been surprising is even in pro crypto jurisdictions where in theory they could mandate banks, uh, it still hasn't happened, right? I'm not going to name them, but you know, you, you, even in jurisdictions where most Web3 startups are headquartered in name, you know, uh, they still can't even access a bank account to receive funds, even if those funds are in dollars, if they're, a, if they're a crypto project, let alone for that kind of seamless flow of transaction, as you say, in, in stable coins or, or anything else. So huge barrier, but broadly sounds, sounds pretty pretty bullish. Um, JJ, what's your bull case for RWAs? My bull case for RWAs, I think, I think I'm looking at the BCG report, 2030, $16 trillion to be tokenized. Let's, let's, let's build and get there. Perfect. All right, guys. Well, look, thanks so much for coming on the show. You've given founders out there that might be looking at DeFi and RWA, uh, some examples some problems to go away and solve, which is one of the beauties of, of, of the show. And of course, the cool thing about this space is for every problem solved, it's a shared solution. It means everyone else can kind of just focus on higher order uh, problems specific to their use case. So it really is um, a, a kind of team effort. Thanks both for coming on and congratulations on the rounds, both over subscribe rounds. Again, I'm not going to go into it. People can check it out. I think PR has been put out around both, but super excited to, uh, to see what you both do over the course of the next 12 months plus. Thanks for coming on. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.